Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. And I'm your host, Rory Hearn. And I'm delighted this is the first podcast for me of 2022. And no better person to have on and back again than Colette Bennett, who is the um, policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Colette, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Rory. I'm very privileged to be your first guest of the new year. Ah, the privilege is all mine. All <laughs> mine. Absolutely all mine. Um, listen, we're going to talk today, have a chat about you um, in Social Justice Ireland did some analysis of housing, the housing assistance payment, some subsidies. It got uh, great headlines and coverage in the Irish Examiner. Um, and other media outlets across the board, um, and some criticism too, which we will go into. Um, but I think it was quite profound in many ways, showing the impact of the housing crisis in terms of the financial impact on people. Um, and it, it is right that we start 2022 with housing, um, because along with COVID, it is the uh, the social issue um, of our time. And of course, I think it is one of the things that's another aspect of the utter shyness of COVID, excuse my language, um, which is how it takes away from the discussion and coverage and attention on housing, understandably. Um, but I think if COVID, not I think, there's no doubt that if COVID you know, hadn't hit, housing would have been discussed so much more. Um, but that's the way things go. That's the way. Yeah, I think COVID, and I mean, again, I'm, I'm like yourself, I'm not trying to downplay it in any way. Um, what I think it has distracted from huge issues. So we've got housing, we've got health and we've got climate. They should be, you know, tying with each other for political and media attention. We should be focused on that. Um, and absolutely, a lot of the headway that could be made is being delayed because necessarily um, of COVID. Yeah, and it was, it's interesting as well because, in many ways, through COVID, and particularly, remember the end of maybe middle end of 2020, there was this sense that you know, with this global pandemic, that we would really change how we would do things. We, you know, we saw you know inequalities being ex- exacerbated within COVID. You know, potential measures like you know eviction bans that would help end homelessness, but even the climate itself, the whole question of the interconnection between how we're living as a species and our planet. Um, and the whole way we order our society, the questioning of values, you know, what we prioritize, the sense that, you know, looking back to, you know, periods in history, pandemics, world wars lead to transformations. And in some element, there, there, there has been a transformation, I think, in how our states have responded to COVID in terms of not true austerity, but in true, you know, investment. But in many ways, we're not seeing COVID, you know, leading to structural changes around how we're running society, do you think? Or what, what's your sense? Yeah, I, I I do. Certainly, I agree with that. I think at the beginning, there was, for, for people like myself and probably yourself and, and others in this space, there was an optimism that this was something that was changing minds, that was changing political outlooks, that, you know, that idea that we're all in it together and the hashtag be kind and the community call and that, you know, everybody was kind of pulling. And then there was the acknowledgement that, okay, 
you know, we're not all in the same boat. Some of, of us have it harder. And there were things like, as you say, the, the ban on evictions. There was the PUP payments, the employee wage subsidy. You know, we that we saw kind of privatised healthcare being public or made public. And we saw real interventions that had a focus on society, that had a focus on people and a particular focus on vulnerability. Um, you know, so much so that the government, you know, I, I actually think it might have been just all het up with the emotion of it all, um, published a, a document around well-being and the, the provision of well-being indicators. So they committed to it in the programme for government in the July and they published the first document on it with the budget in October 2020. Um, and what that committed to doing was underpinning all policies with the well-being of the society in mind. Um, and we saw, you know, again, we had the, the, the ban on eviction just as an example. That thing was published, that well-being document was published in October 2020, as I said, and the ban on evictions ended in April 2021. So we got six months of goodwill um, before we yeah. started again on the, well, you know, we have to pay all this money back and we, you know, we, we can't let spending go off the rails and really back to very, very austerity level thinking. Um, now, thankfully, we haven't seen the type of austerity measures being introduced or being discussed that were there back in 2008. But you know, it, it, we really need to watch out more for the austerity by stealth as opposed to the more kind of obvious things because people are are tuned into it. And as you say, things like housing in particular is having such an impact on so many people across the country um, that that is one area that's going to continually get focus, as I believe will will healthcare. Yeah, no, I, I think that there's no doubt about the scale of the crisis. And also, you know, when we look at, I think housing and COVID is an interesting, it's an interesting lens to look at COVID and understand how it's impacting on people as well. And we know the, the CSO figures showed that there was a higher proportion of COVID in the first waves in overcrowded households, which were predominantly in the private rental sector. Um, and of course, you know, it shows that link between inequality and COVID, you know, the, the absence of space for people to self-isolate um, the whole, you know, issue of working at home you know what that means from working at home the lack of space versus you know households who do have a lot of space and um, which brings up the whole issue of you know the build to rent developments and the micro apartments and you know what type of homes we are building so in many ways you know I, I feel that there's a real need to talk more about you know and there's some element of it happening you know what does covid mean for housing you know what what do you think it means yeah, well, you know, what, I mean, what can we learn from it or how do we need to change things? You know, what what can it tell us? I think that's the question, because what does it mean? It'll mean absolutely nothing if the political will isn't there to make the necessary changes. What should it mean is that we review building regulations, particularly around uh, buy-to-lets, that, you know, the regulations were stripped so much that those properties are unsafe. They're unsafe in a pandemic reality, but they're unsafe anyway. You know, yeah. they don't have proper cross ventilation. They don't have proper access. So we really should be using what we're learning from this to look at that and say, OK, if you were living there, what would you need back in March 2020? What do you need to live a safe and sustainable existence? Uh, similarly, when we look at things like co-living apartments and we talk about transient neighborhoods and we talk about, you know, 
this is just for professionals who might be there from Monday to Friday and then they leave. For many people, that was what was said back pre-2008 about apartments. And then 20 years, you know, 15 years later, people are still living in those apartments. They're living there now with a partner, with a child or more, um, because they can't move on because everything is so expensive. So I'm always really watchful of that narrative around, well, well, this is just temporary. This type of accommodation is just for these type of people. It's not for families. It's not forever. When in reality, it becomes a long-term, if not a forever home. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point. The the idea that, you know, and what the pandemic should be, you know, I think engendering, and it is a certain amount, is that reflection on, you know, living spaces and, and communities and, and how are we creating livable, sustainable spaces within our homes and in the in the community that surrounds it. And I was quite struck by Killian Woods, again, doing great work in the Sunday Business Post, highlighting the lack of crash facilities in the new build to rent developments. And, you know, this again, highlighting again, you know, where are families in this and all types of families, do you know what I mean? Not just, you know, uh, two parent, whatever, uh, but like lots of families and lots of different types of families have children. And, you know, this is, it seems to me, it's a, it also, of course, you think of caring responsibilities, you know, where is caring in this? Where is like, it's all this kind of um, the future according to, I can't remember his name now, the CEO of Airbnb who came out last year and said, you know, Airbnb, you know where we're really heading with Airbnb? Did you hear that? No. His idea, his idea was that um, really people Airbnb shouldn't just be about or his ideas. It shouldn't just be about like, you know, short term tourist accommodation. It should be about living and that people would live according to this model. So like I might live here for two months and your relationship and the nature of your relationship with your landlord is not about a contract or a, a lease. It's about this short term agreement. He was serious. Like but I mean, he's the, using a model that's already been, I suppose, rolled out when we think about jobs. You know, way back when you had a job for life, you had the permanent yeah. pensionable working in a bank or the civil service or, you know, any sort of job. You picked up a trade and you had a job for life and you had a job that, that serviced your needs. And we saw that absolutely eroded. We saw zero hours contracts and increased precarity. We know that there's a over 100,000 people who are underemployed, so they're part-time employed, that would like and are available for more hours. And so, you know, we can't apply what is not working in the labour market to that housing market. What we need is the entire opposite of that. We need communities where people want to stay, where people want to grow old and can grow old comfortably. Like, you know, that this narrative that sets young versus old against each other because obviously there are more older owner occupiers um but really you know we shouldn't be looking at it like that we should be looking at well if if and when i get older what do i need so i may not need my family home but i don't want to leave my community so i need something somewhere that is close to my my family and friends um but lets me have a a much more comfortable life you know whether it's it's accessibility that i need in terms of you know increased frailty or wheelchair use or whatever it might be um so we should be looking at a, a life cycle approach to housing development instead of more and more and more of a transitionary approach that people will just 
pop in and pop out and there's no real community there's no real society being built to me it, it's like um it's like a vision of society according to people who are completely disconnected from society like you know i you know elon musk and you know the head of airbnb and all these you know big massive multi-billion investors of zero connection to society and people around them except what makes them you know center of the world and and you know fly off to space and they are the ones envisioning and designing and the institutional investors are the same you know it is the the similar model what creates the most maximum return maximum wealth and the most disconnected from you know community so they they i think that's part of the problem but there's no sense that you know and it was even reading it was incredible because um uh, David McWilliams was quoting uh, this research guy in New York. I don't know if you come, came across it, where the 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 paper, which the research that he has said, which showed that an increase in supply of housing in New York by I can't remember, it was a twenty percent. I think led to a ten percent reduction in prices. And he quoted it in the Irish Times article as his argument: you know, the supply will lead to reduced prices. Um, and I went and read the uh, the New York guy's blog on it. And, and I, to read it, I was like, oh, my God, this is terrifying. He started talking about this period in New York history whereby he, they called it, oh, it was this time of year when leases were up and people moved or had to move um, back in the, I can't remember, was it the post-First World War or post-Second World War? But he was describing it like in a really positive way, like, you know, households were able to have the chance to, you know, look around and see what was there. And my head going, are you serious? Like, I can imagine... So many of them were like, uh, I don't want to move. Like, my family is here. Like, it seems it's just not so an eviction. It's an opportunity. Exactly. That's exactly it. Look yeah. at the eviction as the opportunity <laughs> for you to, like, better yourself, you know, find a new community. And it's like, this is actually how they think. This is the people running our world now. This is what they think. It's yeah. Terrifying. And I mean, it's, it's, it's terrifying on every level. And funnily enough, I was having this conversation just before Christmas um, with somebody who was doing research around indebtedness and um, insolvency. And they were talking about the legislation. And I was saying, well, actually, having been there from the very, very beginning and, and spent a lot of time very, very close to it, um, you know, it was very clear. This is back to the, in terms of the, insolvency. the crash, yeah, financial crash like, and mortgage arrears. and Absolutely. But it's like, it was very clear when we started working through it um, to look at the systems that the insolvency service were going to be put in place, and I mean their actual IT systems, that there was no understanding of the types of living expenses and the types of debts that those on very, very low incomes actually have. It was all geared towards kind of a middle to higher income uh, population. So when I was there from, a, from, from MAVS, I worked on the policy side in MAVS, and when I was looking at it from the perspective of, well, people who are in a very, very low income, they've got catalogue debts, they've got shop debts, they've got vets debts and funeral bills. And, you know, it's it's not central bank regulated debt that's going to be their main concern. So how do you use this legislation to support them? And it ended up, it ended up actually having to have two amendments to the law to actually make it operational. For people on low incomes because the drafters just didn't get it and yeah. when you apply that to a much broader scale you're you're absolutely right like you're looking at people who just don't understand communities and how communities work and how society engages with each other and how that makes things better and how if you know the kind of spirit level stuff around 
you know, lower crime rates, better quality of life when everybody is, is more equal. Um, if you're not thinking that, then your your design is going to be completely skewed. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. And and it does obviously connect to, I think, so much to, you know, again, the pandemic in many ways has uprooted so much and, you know, and changed so much. And, and I was struck again, that question of insecurity and precariousness and this idea now that, oh, it's in some ways the pandemic in a really perverse way is giving people, commentators, and th- this idea that, you know, we just need to accept insecurity now, you know, just accept you don't know what's coming down the road. And you're going like, it's very easy for you and your very well-paid job, you know, to say, oh, a bit of insecurity is okay or not knowing the future, when for most people, you know, they crave security, utter, you know, and need it. You need it to raise a family. You need it. And I think that there's a dangerous side to the pandemic that, we just now accept that, oh, we can't plan anything and people should just accept this constant state of insecurity. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, absolutely, we need to be flexible in terms of those of us who are lucky to have a job um, and a kind of a long term, you know, job um, where, you know, we need to have that kind of flexibility where we can work from home when we need to. And the kind of useful elements around, well, you know, it's no longer a surprise if a child runs into the background of an interview or um, a, a meeting that you have. And, you know, that that side of yourself that asks you to cut yourself off from your family. Like yeah. we went through so long as as people in employment, pretending that we didn't have any family or any yeah. responsibilities outside of work. And I think that's a, a good thing that that line has been blurred and that flexibility is there. But you can't apply that to everything because it doesn't apply to everything. It's not it's not a one size fits all. Now we're completely flexible because you're absolutely right. It's one of the core needs of human beings to have some sense of security. Yeah. And that's why we're seeing you know, things like the, the research around adverse childhood experiences and the insecurities that that brings to people. And that follows them so much so that it can change their DNA um, and it follows them through adulthood. And you know, that, that that awful word resilience uh, that I hate because it puts that kind of individualism, that responsibility back on people when really it's a systemic problem. It's something that needs a societal response. But if we if we focus policy on moving away from society and moving away from community, then what we're building is people who who are going to be very, very insecure. And that is not a, a good space to be in for a population. No, and, and there's no doubt as well, I think, that this is directly linked, we're seeing in terms of rising, you know, mental health illnesses, the the mental health issues, you know, particularly, you know, the Growing Up in Ireland study was was that came out there just before Christmas was very shocking in terms of the high level of mental health um, uh, in terms of, I think it was depressive symptoms amongst young people. I don't have the figures in my hand, but it was a very large proportion of people in their young people in their 20s who were um you know really had had symptoms close to uh serious depression and you know this is all part of of a society that people lack security and lack a sense of future and lack a sense of inclusion and engagement absolutely i mean there was another study done that looked at school children and, and quite young school children as well kind of pre and post pandemic 
or kind of pre and during pandemic, I suppose. Um, and it was that that increase in anxiety, that increase in depressive symptoms um, for very young primary school aged children during the pandemic because they didn't know if they were safe to go to school. When they were in school, they didn't know if they were going to be safe or if they were going to catch this disease that might kill them or might kill a loved one. Um, so, you know, it's a very dangerous space to be in. And I, I really liked um, Austin O'Carroll came out with a piece there last week um, looking at the, the terminology that we use around depression and around personality disorders in particular. Um, and he was talking about, well, it should really be all about trauma based care. So or trauma informed care. So rather than it being what's wrong with you, it's what happened to you. And if you think about mental health in that way or, you know, personality disorders or particular particular elements of mental health in that way, then it kind of and you follow it backwards. Then you're looking at, OK, well, what happened to you? What if what happened to you is that you didn't have a secure tenancy during a pandemic, that in the middle of a pandemic, you could be served with an eviction notice and you wouldn't know where you were going? that you could be living in accommodation with other households you can't control, that you, you know, they, they may be engaging in riskier behaviours that aren't aligned to what you would wish for your family, but there's nothing you can do about it. Um, you know, what if that's what has happened to you? So I think by looking at that thing again of, of much more precarity across the board, um, we're driving towards a mental health crisis. Yeah, no, I think that's a really insightful point there about, you know, particularly in the pandemic, the lack of control that people have, but people's housing situations being so insecure that it feeds that sense of lack of control. Um, and of course, the stress related that and that that brings us on to the report, which which we're getting to. And, and uh, that was an important <laughs> and I'm glad we had that uh, round the world conversation first, because it is important, I think, that to step back at, at these times and look at, you know, where are we going? Because there's not enough of that. So much of it is just like, what's that your finding of your latest report? And give me it in two minutes there, please. And uh, <laughs> let's not discuss anything wider or more structural um, or even, God forbid, question the nature of society and how we're doing it. Um, but we got to keep those questions there. And deftly also, done, Rory. Deftly done. Deftly. So deftly. <laughs> and so subtly as well. Absolutely. <laughs> Subtle as a hammer, that's me. Um, so in terms of the report, you want to set out there in terms of it the main the main points you found in it. And of course, it does relate directly to housing insecurity and oh, it absolutely does. I mean, the okay, so the report is called Housing and Poverty 2022. And what it is is exactly as it says on the tin. Um, it looks at the relationship between housing costs and the poverty rate. So it is part of the, the publication from the Central Statistics Office that re was released back on the 17th of December last year um, that looks at the 2020 EU silk. So I'll explain a bit more about that. So our poverty data comes from this survey. It's a European-wide survey the Central Statistics Office um, conduct it every year for Ireland and they bring forward the, the 
outcome of it to Eurostat at a European level so we can compare ourselves with our European peers. Um, what it stands for is the Survey on Income and Living Conditions, and it's where we get our poverty and our deprivation numbers. Um, so for the 2020, so there's always a little bit of a time lag, for the 2020 version of it, what the CSO also included was, for the very first time, a data set on the impact of housing costs on the poverty rate. So after you've paid either your mortgage interest or your rent, um, what does the poverty rate look like across certain demographics, certain household types? Um, so just to, again, give a bit more on that as well, when we talk about housing costs, it is only confined to rent payments or mortgage interest. So the cost of buying the asset, of actually paying down any sort of capital side of the mortgage is not factored in. It is literally the cost of servicing the debt. Um, and really, when we had a look at it, the findings were just quite startling. So our national poverty rate is 13.2%. Um, that's the overall rate. Once you factor in housing costs, so as I say, mortgage interest and rent, it goes up to 19%. So almost one in five in the population are at risk of poverty once you factor in housing costs. That's almost a million people. Um, yeah. So it's huge. It's almost 300,000 children. In fact, 300,000 is a, is a number that keeps getting bandied about because it's about 300,000 more um, after you factor in housing that are in poverty than the pre-housing -poverty, pre poverty rate. Um, so basically, just to explain that very clearly, um, the essentially when people pay for the mortgage or pay for the rent, that if you calculate their disposable income then, that effectively they're in a, in a situation of poverty. Whereas before the poverty measure or, or the, the sort of more narrow view of measurement of poverty is whereby you don't include their housing costs and you measure their income, disposable income, and say, are they in poverty or not? And essentially what the CSO did was it calculated when you take out, or sorry, when you include the mortgage and rent costs and then assess are people in poverty, essentially the poverty numbers almost doubled. Exactly that. Um, so you've got, so it's, it's one and a half times. Um, but really, you know, where the poverty measure comes from, and again, as I say, this is a, a CSO level survey. They do the analysis in relation to the, the income element of it, but it's a, a European wide survey. Um, and what they do is it's called the median equivalized disposable income. So, yeah. you know, not a readily accessible term, uh, <laughs> I guess. But really, if you line up everybody in order of the very, very lowest income to the very, very highest income, and you pick out the person bang in the middle, that's your median income there. Um, the reason it's equivalized is so that it can be compared across household types. So essentially what it is, is you've got a one adult household. For every additional adult, you add 66% of that rate. For every additional child, you add 33%. So the poverty line for a one adult household back in 2020 was €273.17 a week. So you already immediately know that based on the core social welfare rate at the time, which was 203, the poverty line is 70 euro above the core social welfare rate for a single adult household. For a single parent household with two children, 
The rate is €453.47 a week for two adults and two children. It's 633.76. So that's what we mean when we say it's the the median equivalized disposable income. So you can compare across household types. Yeah. And so in terms of that, then, the what does it tell us around housing subsidies then? And Yes. So one of the like, again, I mean, I've looked at this as you have um, for a long time in terms of looking at housing data and housing statistics. And I found myself really, really surprised at this. Um, we've said for a very long time that HAP is not a good thing, that RAS is not a good thing, that using the private rented market for social housing is not anyone's idea of a solution. And this came again back in early 2021. Um, there was a, a two publications on the same day. One was a report in relation to how Rebuilding Ireland was doing. So it looked at 2016 to 2020, and it calculated over 80,000 HAP tenancies. And it was kind of lauded that year on year, those, those tenancies were going up. The same time, probably even within the same week, um, there was a, a an unlauded or not lauded um, document or a, a spreadsheet, a set of statistics on the Department of Housing's website um, that went into the HAP payments that were being made to landlords. And what it said was there is just under 60,000, 59,800 odd uh, HAP tenancies in place as at 2020. So what that meant was, at the end of 2020, so what that meant was there's a 26% failure rate of all new HAP tenancies. So we knew that this was a precarious type. We knew it already. We now had the data to prove it. What the latest set of data is showing us is that the poverty rate for households that are receiving these types of subsidies, HAP, RAS and, and rent supplement, that the poverty rate is two and a half times after the rent has been paid. So it's 22.7% before rent payments, but 55.9%, more than one in two people uh, living in these printed, private rented accommodation with these subsidies are living on or below the poverty line. And what it says very clearly then is that the subsidy, the housing assistance payment is inadequate. And people might, again, be a little bit confused about this because it is confusing that when you're in receipt of the housing assistance payment, a certain proportion of your rent is paid to the private landlord, depending on the limit. Then you pay a rent, a, a lower rent to the local authority. But what's also happening and has increasingly happened because the limits haven't been increased since 2016 exactly is this top up. So people are paying the gap between what their private landlord gets from the state and what is the actual market rent now. And so what is seen is that so when when this poverty rate is calculated, the rent payment that is calculated, I assume is the rent the rent that the tenant pays to the local authority plus whatever top up they're paying? Um, the way it's actually calculated is for, for the purposes of the silk is the half or the subsidy is added to the income as an income for the household, and then the full rent is taken. So it will take into account any payment that the tenant is paying to the local authority plus any top up that they're paying to the landlord. Yeah, and 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 again, that the point is, it shows very clearly that yeah, HAP, you know, is not keeping people out of poverty, and and is is leaving people in a state of insecurity. Absolutely, I mean, the the rate at fifty five point nine percent 
can only be seen as an abject failure of the state to provide social housing for these households. It is the highest post-housing costs poverty rate of any tenure. So when we look at all rented tenancies, the rate is 44.7% after rent has been paid. We look at very low incomes, renting from the local authority, it's 49.8, so just under one in two. We look at the private rented sector without any support, so people who are earning enough that they're not eligible for supports, and the rate there is 30.7%. Like That's a, a really large gap between those who don't need or don't have supports um, and those who do. And it's to me, it's surprising because you would almost expect the other way around, that households who are getting support would have a, a lower after housing costs poverty rate than those who are not getting any support. But actually, there's 25 percentage points in the difference. Yeah, no, it, it, it's quite something. And listen, you got some criticism we won't name by anybody in particular, but uh, some um, uh, you got some criticism on Twitter over this. What exactly was that about? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there are some critics of the poverty calculation anyway. So there are some people who just don't believe that the, the CSO methodology stands up notwithstanding the fact that it is the objective barometer of poverty, that it is the, the barometer that's used, used Europe-wide, that it is an independent measure. Um, so some of the criticism stemmed from that. For others, the criticism stemmed from the fact that, well, people are getting a subsidy, so that's, that's a good thing. So low, people on lower incomes are getting a subsidy, and therefore it's better than if they weren't. What they're not doing is finishing off that thought with, well, that subsidy should be sufficient to afford them somewhere to live. It shouldn't drive them further into poverty. They should not have a post-rent rate of poverty that is 150% higher than their pre-rent payment rate. So, you know, that that was really where the criticism was, was coming from. Others are, you know, more critical in terms of just an ideology, I think, you know, um, that people who are in receipt of subsidies are, are the, the less deserving poor. And I just don't subscribe to that type of narrative at all. Um, I think if people have been deemed to have a housing need, that they need social housing, they should be provided with actual social housing because private rented sector is not working. We said it very strongly from the outset back in September 2014, when HAP was introduced, that this was a subsidy for landlords, that this was a, an income protection measure for landlords. This proves that that is the case. It isn't doing what it should be doing by providing sustainable support of social housing for tenants, but it is providing an, an income for landlords. Yeah, it's really interesting, of course, and all these people, when they say that, they uh, fail to mention that we also give 100,000 plus. Uh, I think inclu- if you include the uh, affordable housing subsidy um, combined with the help to buy grant combined with something, there's some other grant available to a home buyer, you're potentially talking about 130,000 plus available as a subsidy, yet yet there's not critiques of that. And, and there is often, um, or obviously, you know, <laughs> there are critiques and we critique it in terms of inflating house prices, but from, you know, a right perspective, a right wing perspective, there's not that same parity of critique 
um, in terms of the stigmatizing of those who are on social housing and in terms of support. And of course, that's the issue with the housing assistance payment, that these tenants are officially under legislation designated as being entitled to social housing, yet the form of social housing that they're receiving is completely different than someone who's in receipt of housing by a local authority or a housing association paying only the differential income-based rent. So there's actually a real, I wonder, like, you know, is there is there a case here legally? And of course, it comes back to the right to housing and why they don't want to put the right to housing in the constitution is because clearly there would be a legal challenge there for why is someone who is entitled to social housing, who is in receipt of the HAP payment, paying more in rent than someone who is paying entitled to social housing and is in a form of a local authority housing or housing association. It's an injustice there and more than injustice. Uh, to me, it's illegal. Um, this, the Irish state is actually not fulfilling its obligations through social yeah. housing legally. I mean, these subsidies are there to provide, and again, I'm using the Rebuilding Ireland term, it is not mine, um, social housing solutions. So we moved from social housing provision and delivery to social housing solutions through the private rented sector. But, you know, the only difference is the type of, of payment that they're getting. These are social housing tenants. These are tenants in the exact same boat, in the same position as tenants in local authority accommodation. They should have the same rights. They should have the same outgoings as those tenants. They absolutely. And of course, that comes back to, to finish up... <laughs> Our conversation come full circle. It comes back to insecurity as well, because the social housing tenants who are reliant on the housing assistance payment in the private rental sector are exposed to the chronic situation of lack of security of tenure in the private rental sector that all private uh, tenants are exposed to. But clearly, if you're on low income, if you're in poverty and your landlord serves an eviction notice, the possibilities of you finding somewhere else are practically zero. And this is why we're seeing homelessness rise again. And of course, it comes back to the need for obviously building social housing. But in the interim, the eviction ban, I think, to be brought back in again. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when we we look at the fact that there is a failure rate of HAP tenancies of 26%, this is not a solution. You know, we're talking about the poverty risk, almost 56%. It is not a solution. It is not a sustainable means of social housing. The in terms of the the rent of, or sorry the the eviction ban, absolutely. I mean that was a policy that was very much person centred. That was a, a well being type policy. But again, we saw that reverse almost as soon as, soon as was humanly possible um, to protect landlords and protect their profitability and their payments. Yeah, and and we saw the Taoiseach uh, interviewed in in the Irish Examiner today, where he was talking about um, the eviction ban, and he said he was concerned about rising homelessness. And I'm really glad he is concerned about it because, uh, you know, it's anyway concern. I just get so cross um, and frustrated. But you know, he said there was legal impediments to implementing um, an eviction ban again, and there are legal impediments to introducing a temporary eviction ban. They could do that in terms of the constitution. There's a common good um, proviso in Article 43, which says they could you know, interfere with private property rights. That's there. Absolutely. I mean, all, I suppose the difficulty with it is, and I'm no constitutional scholar, but the difficulty with it is, you know, 
all rights under the Constitution can be subjugated or set aside in favour of the common good. Um, but there has been such a swell of case law that has knocked that back, um, that the precedent is there overwhelmingly in favour of property owners, in favour of all types of property owner. Uh, so that is, I suppose, a, a, a difficulty, but it's not an insurmountable difficulty. Um, and certainly providing strength in the constitution through uh, a constitutional referendum on the right to housing would really bolster that. I mean, you're right, it's already there. It says it, it's it's part of that con- the exact same constitutional article. Um, but because it hasn't been used, and in fact, it's been, it's been overturned or the decisions have been made against it, it's, it's weakened it to a certain extent. Yeah, no, it, it, it has, but I... I think I, I think they could push hard on this if they wanted to. If they really wanted to, they could they could get this through, even on an interim six month year basis. But it does highlight again, you know, you're absolutely right in terms of the constitution, the need for clarity on that, the need to actually if we're saying <laughs> that our constitution does not allow us put in place a protection for tenants that bans evictions, even on a temporary basis, you know, clearly the constitution has to be changed and we have to put the right to housing in it. But I think the the strongest argument in favour of being able to do it, or the strongest counter argument, I suppose, to not being able to do it, is that it was already done. It was already done very recently in the face of an emergency. We're still in an emergency. We're still living through a pandemic, but we also have a housing emergency. So if you can enact emergency legislation that allows you to have a ban on evictions, we're still there. We're still in those circumstances. Yeah, we are. We are. Well, listen, Colette Bennett, social policy officer with the uh, Social Justice Ireland. Um, it was brilliant to have you back on again, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, we try and find hope amidst the despair, don't we? That's us. <laughs> Ever hopeful. We keep battling on. But listen, thanks so much for giving your time. Thank you very much for having me, Rory. Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you too. And uh, yeah, no, it really was uh, an interesting conversation. I'm glad we went broad on COVID first because it is something that I know, you know, is obviously dominating so many people's thoughts, but we need to, I think, to extend beyond um, the immediate in many ways and try and think, you know, what, how can it bring about changes and in positive changes? And we need to look at, at other issues alongside it. Um, but just a, a reminder and a request to our listeners um and thank you of course always start by thanking and, and happy new year to all our patrons all the the people who subscribe um and contribute each month to the the cost of these podcasts to keeping us going um thank you to tony groves of tortoise shack media for producing the podcast they wouldn't exist without him and tortoise shack um and it's been great we've actually had some really um uh, great listenership figures in terms of the podcasts a uh, real uh, increase over 5000 downloads um last week um and you know it's a lot of people listening and it would be great to those who aren't patrons if you could consider becoming a patron sign up whatever you can to contribute each month to help us going we have no ads we're independent media we rely on our listeners so go over to 
patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack sign up for what you can each month help the independent media uh help reboot republic um keep going to get the ideas out there have the discussion and chats and as always if you have any ideas or comments or you want to contribute you can share a comment on twitter at rory hearn or on instagram um, or at reboot republic or email email us at reboot republic at gmail.com and please um hope you enjoy the podcast and share it around let your friends family and all those you know know about them thank you very much happy new year again and we will talk to you along the way